I'll pray for us as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, uh, in the light of our passage tonight, we pray that you might help us tonight to set our mind on things above, uh, help us to learn from your word, uh, but we pray that it will not simply remain in our minds, but it might translate into the way we live. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I uh, worked in the city back in the late 1990s, before I went to Bible college, uh, I had the the luck, if you like, of having a uh, corner desk with a window looking out, uh, and I looked out over what's now Barangaroo, which is, uh, was nowhere near as attractive then as it is now, it's not parkland or anything like that, it was just docks and old cars and old buildings. Uh, anyway, I was on the 25th floor or so, and there was a smaller building next door, and so my window looked out onto the top of that building. And just for about a week in 1998, my desk was the place to be in all of Sydney. Uh, In fact, uh, especially all the women who worked in my building basically came up with excuses about work they had to do with me to come to my desk and stand there looking out the window uh, for about a week, pretending to talk to me. Uh, And it was, in fact, I thought the building was actually going to get a lean on it. There were so many people hanging around just at my desk. And it was because they were filming the movie The Matrix on the top of the building next door. Who, who has seen The Matrix? Just so I get it. Well, when The Matrix came out, Keanu Reeves was the film star. You know, I don't know. He's, he was the, the Chris Hemsworth or, or, you know, whatever it is. I'm, I'm now out of my pop culture references. But uh, <laughs> Keanu Reeves was the star. Uh, and you might remember, if you've all those people have seen the movie, there was the scene on the top of the building where he dodges the bullets. Do you know the scene? So I've got a picture of it. There it is. That scene there. Well, it took them about a week to film that scene. And so everyone, that's not actually the building. My building was around that way. So everyone was just staring out the window for a glimpse of Keanu Reeves. And there he was in his trench coat doing that. Uh, Now, I never really got into that movie like other people did. So can I ask you, if you're one of those Matrix people you know, the sort of people who even bothered watching the second, third and fourth or whatever ones. If you're one of those people, please don't come and talk to me after church. I really don't care. I don't want to know. Uh, I watched it entirely to see if I could see myself peering out of a window. That is the entire reason I watched the movie. Uh, But the premise of the movie, as far as I can tell, and I may have got it totally wrong, the premise is that this world that we're living in is not real. It's not the real reality and he's got to take a certain colour pill or something like that to discover that actually this is sort of like a computer-generated world and the real world is actually nowhere near as nice and so on and so forth. Whether or not I understood the movie, and chances are, as I said, I missed the point, uh, in a strange sort of way, it captures the reality of the Christian life. You see, one of the big themes of the New Testament is that this world is not the one that counts as much as the heavens. And more than that, as a Christian, this world is not your real home anymore. This is a theme right through the New Testament. We think this world is the place to be. We we think this world is the one we should focus on, but actually, the Bible tells us we are like refugees here. We are aliens and strangers because we are actually citizens of heaven. And that is the big point of our passage today. The Apostle Paul basically asks us one question, that is, will you live with your mind set on this world? Will you live with your mind caught up in the things of this world? Or 
Will you live for your real home? Will you live with Jesus in the heavens where Jesus has a place reserved for you? So come with me to chapter 3 and I'm going to read out the first four verses again because they capture this massive point. So follow along with me, verse 1 to 4. He says, So, if you have been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above, where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. When the Messiah, who is your life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the massive change that happened on the day you became a Christian. See, when you became a Christian, when you trust in Jesus, something massive happened. Often I think people sort of think of it as, ah, I just sort of went from being this and now I've added believing in Jesus to who I am. That is not what Jesus says. Jesus says, no, 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 no. On that day, your old sinful self died you died on the day you trusted in Christ when Jesus died on the cross the old sinful you that the you that deserves God's judgment and condemnation was crucified with Jesus and we saw that last week if you remember back in chapter 2 when he says you died with Christ to this world and you were then reborn Jesus calls it being born again in John chapter 3. And look at how he says it in verse 1 here. He says, you have been raised with the Messiah. So as your old sinful self has died and a new person has come to life. You've been raised from the dead. You are a new person, forgiven, washed clean, a child of God, now living for God like you were designed to do. The Phil Colgan you are looking at now was born in 1993. I really haven't kept my age well, have I? But you're thinking, gee, I thought he looked old before, but now, you know, you know. I am 26 year old, years old. But that is the thing, isn't it? It doesn't look like I'm 26 years old. It doesn't look like I've been raised with Christ. And for all of us living in this sinful fallen world, it doesn't feel like it a lot of the time. Because this world seems more real. You see, the reality of who we are is, just look at verse 3, it is hidden with the Messiah in God. That's the reality. You see, we've been raised with Christ, but our experience is we're still caught up in this world. Our experience is of still struggling with sin. Our experience is of struggling with the effects of sin in our world, with pain and sickness and disease and death. But when Christ returns we will see the reality. Look at verse 4. It says, When the Messiah, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. See, when Christ returns, you will not just see Jesus in all his glory. We will see one another in all our glory. You and I will be revealed for what we are. We will be seen as forgiven, seen as washed clean, seen as sinless children of God. But his point here is, even if you can't see that yet, even if it doesn't feel like it a lot of the time, it is true. See, what will be revealed when Jesus returns is true already. You have already died with Christ. You have already been made alive in Christ. Now that is is meant to sort of blow your mind and we could plummet steps for hours. But now he says, now I want to get to the point of that. What this means for you is this. And that is, if that's true, 
Then look at verse 1. Then he says, seek what is above, where the Messiah is. What do you seek after? What is it that dominates your mind and dominates your thoughts and dominates your time? A good way of asking that is, what would other people looking at my life say I seek after? And if it is, the, is it the things of this world or is it the things of heaven? Is it the things of this world or is it Jesus who is seated in the heavens at the right hand of his Father in our real home? See, the reality is we all naturally revert to seeking what is on earth. We all naturally revert to seeking wealth and possessions and, and, and people's high opinion of us and all those other things that make us feel good in this world. But God is saying to us, your new self, your new life, it has a different direction. It has a different goal. It has a different purpose. And it is a wonderful and it is glorious and is so much better than the temporary pleasures and the temporary aspirations of this world. So focus your eyes on that. Live for that, not for this. But that takes a conscious effort. Look at verse 2. He says, set your minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth. See, it actually takes a deliberate effort to not get caught up in the things of this earth, the things of this world. We will always have our minds and our eyes dragged down, back down into this world. The moment you walk out of here and you open your phone or you turn on your radio, showing my age there, or whatever it is you do, the world will bombard you. And we'll say, no, 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 live for this world. Set your mind here. That's where you need to be. We have to be deliberate. I will keep setting my mind on heavenly things. I will keep reshaping my mind with Christ, not the things of this world. I'm going to deliberately focus my mind on Christ. I'm going to deliberately let Jesus shape my opinion, shape my thoughts, rather than let this world shape my mind. This is why we must try to read our Bible and pray every day. It's not just a good idea, it's not just a good habit, it is something we must do. There's no two ways about it, the world is shaping our mind all the time. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, the world is shaping our mind. How on earth can we survive, how on earth can we set our mind on heavenly things if we don't at least let God shape our mind for a moment each day, reading His Word. I'd encourage you to turn off some of the other sewage pipes into your mind, but at the very least we have to turn on the tap and let God's Word shape our mind each day. It's why we must make an absolute priority of meeting together around God's Word. I just don't understand the modern Christian who misses church for other things. I just don't understand it. Generations ago, Christians would never have done that. They just said, how could you do that? Because how on earth will I set my mind on heavenly things if I miss the time in my week to get recalibrated, to meet with my brothers and sisters around the Word of God? I don't understand the modern Christian who doesn't join and commit to a gospel team each week. We meet with the world all week. The world is shaping your mind all week. How can we keep our minds set on what is above if we do not prioritise meeting with our Christian brothers and sisters around God's Word. And we know it's true, don't we, from experience. When we are not reading the Bible, it is amazing how quickly 
our mind changes on things and follows the ways of the world. When we are not regularly in Christian fellowship, this world becomes more important and Jesus becomes less important. We start to talk like the world. We start to think like the world. It's just the reality. Sadly, in my experience over the years, many times I've seen people who I thought were Christian brothers and sisters slowly withdraw from Christian fellowship. And when they were in Christian fellowship, they agreed, Jesus died for my sins, there is only one way of salvation. It's amazing how within a year of not being in Christian fellowship, suddenly oh, all roads lead to God. doesn't matter how you live. And they are not following Jesus. Set your minds on things above and be deliberate about it. But more than setting our minds on things above, we now need to explore what else we should do if we've died to this life, if we've died to this world and are now alive in Christ. And there are three related things in the passage we're going to look at now. The first is we have to put to death our old selves. And that's in verses 5 to 7. So look at verse 5. He says, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature. Do you notice it's not try to avoid these things? Do you notice it's not do your best to not get caught up in these things? It's put them to death because they are not a part of the new you. I can't help but think of when Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to be saved with one eye than to be cast into hell with two. Put these things to death. Do everything in your power to not be tempted by them. And what are these things that belong to our worldly nature? Well, he gives us a list. Look at the first word there, it's sexual immorality. The word is porneia, where we get the word pornography from. It covers all sexual activity outside of a heterosexual marriage. God says that is sexual immorality. Any sexual activity outside of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman is sexual immorality. It covers sex before marriage. It covers all homosexual practice. He would now extend to watching pornography, not that Jesus and Paul could even guess at how depraved our world would become. It's amazing how in the last 30 or so years, the Christian view of sex has gone from being the normal view of our world which people said, yeah, I know it's right, even if I don't live by it, to now being seen as strange and even harmful sometimes. I read an article in the Sydney Morning Herald last year from a young woman who grew up going to an Anglican school in Sydney and going to an Anglican youth group, she said, and she said, they damaged me psychologically because they did not encourage me to explore my sexuality. I read another article in the Sydney Morning Herald last year where a person said, I am proud of my affair because I was unhappy in my marriage and I needed to find fulfilment somewhere else. No one can tell me it's wrong. Our world now delights in its depravity. And those things are true, by the way, if you believe we are nothing more than animals. If you believe we are just like the animals, unable to control our base instincts and just driven by our sexual desires. God has a much higher view of you than that. God has a much higher view of humanity than that. He says, you are made in His image. And you are not to be debased in that way. But my point is, unlike for the last 2,000 years, where the Christian view of sex was the normal view, we are now back in a time like the first century, where the idea that sex should be limited to a marriage relationship between one man and one woman for life is totally countercultural. 
And what that means is, if you listen to the world, you will be sexually immoral. It's just as simple as that. If you follow the world, you will be sexually immoral because the world says to be sexually immoral is to find fulfilment. But here's the thing, aside from God's word, which tells us how things should be, experience actually shows that the Christian view is better. Experience shows us the damage the sexual promiscuity since the 1960s has done to our society. Sex is a powerful gift from God to be used to bind one man and one woman together for life. But like all powerful things, when you misuse it, it causes massive damage. So many of the problems in our society come from the rise in sexual promiscuity. Psychological damage, broken relationships, hurt people, broken relationships between men and women in general. Our world won't admit it, but it's actually statistically undeniable. So God says, put to death sexual immorality. Don't tolerate it. Don't flirt with it. Put it to death. It is not part of a person raised with Christ. Second thing, he says, put to death, look there in your passage, is impurity. That's actually a related word for wider sexual activity that's not covered by the first word, by sexual immorality. And I think Paul does this intentionally because he knows in every age there are Pharisees who say, ah, we haven't slept together, so I'm not guilty on that front. And he says, don't be stupid. And he puts this word there to cover it all. God's view is, if you are not married to someone, they are your brother or sister. That's God's view of our relationships. You are being impure. If you do something with them, you would not do with your brother or sister. It repulses God and causes his wrath. Put it to death. The third and fourth thing there, lust, evil desires. He's saying it's not just actions, it's thoughts as well. It's our thoughts. And then fifthly, he says greed, which is idolatry. It's not, he's not actually, I don't think he's talking about financial greed at that point. The word is coveting that he uses there. And I think he's still on the sexual immorality theme. He's saying coveting or greed is to desire what is not yours to have. In this case, someone else's body that is not yours. It's a desire to take what is not yours and have what you should not have. And he says that is idolatry. When we just allow ourselves to be led by our sinful desires, to be led by our self-indulgent pleasures, we are actually just making ourselves God. It's idolatry and God hates idolatry. We're living for ourselves and for our pleasure, not for the God who created us. And just in case you need any further persuasion to see how serious sexual sin is, any further persuasion to put these things to death, he gives us a final reason, look at verse 6. He says, because of these, God's wrath comes on the disobedient and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. He says, it's because of sin like this that God will judge the world. But you are not like that anymore. You have been forgiven for your sin. God has made you alive in Christ. So he says, how could you tolerate that in your lives anymore? There's a warning here. Don't ever presume on God's grace and forgiveness. Delight in God's grace, but don't dare presume on it and throw it back in his face. God can forgive all sexual immorality if a person repents and trusts in Jesus, but the unrepentant, sexually immoral person will not inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot say, I follow Jesus 
and I will persist in sexual immorality unrepentant. It is a horrible thing to fall under the judgment of God. That was the old you though. Before you became a Christian, you might have lived like that. You tolerated things in your life, but now you are different. So live like it. And if you are someone who is struggling with sexual immorality, whether it's watching pornography or involved in a physical relationship, you should not be. Can I ask you to put it to death, to treat it with the seriousness it deserves, get rid of it. Do what you've got to do, seek the help you've got to get, but do not let it control you. That is sexual immorality. Now, he could have chosen all sorts of other worldly sins to talk about. To use this example, I would have thought, felt much more comfortable if he'd chosen something else, but he didn't. And I think he chose that one because it is such a powerful force in our fallen world. It's just a reality. Sexual sin, it's not just in our modern world with the internet and pornography and all that. Sexual sin has always been the, most, the thing most people struggle with. It's just a reality. But it fights for that number one position with what he turns to next, which is the way we speak, the way we use our words. Look at verse 8. He says, but now you must also put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander and filthy language from your mouth. He switches the picture here from put it to death to put it away. But it's the same point. He's saying, don't tolerate these things in your life either. Get rid of them. So firstly, he says, put away anger and wrath. It is possible to be righteously angry. God does not sin when he is angry at our sin. It's possible to be righteously angry. Jesus was angry. Remember in the temple when he went in there and saw the way they were treating his father's house and he said, he overturned the tables, he was angry, he whipped them out of the temple. It is possible to be angry for godly reasons. Troy alluded to that before, he said it might be as you look at such a horrible event as what we saw this week, that it might make you angry. But generally, our anger is not righteous. When I'm being honest, 99.9999% of the times I am angry, it is because I am selfish and it's because I am self-righteous. Our anger is usually because I haven't got my way and you're in my way and you're annoying me. Isn't that true? And here's the thing, when I speak in anger, is it ever helpful? Just go back through your last month. Is there ever a time where you have spoken in anger and afterwards you go, gee, that was encouraging. That was helpful for everyone present. Have I ever built anyone up in anger? I can tell you the answer is no. You might be more godly than me, but if we want to live for Jesus, we will put away anger and wrath, especially in our speech. Second thing there, look there, he says malice. He's talking about hurtful words. When we speak in a way designed to tear the other person down, to hurt them. It's almost worse, I think, when words are spoken in malice rather than in anger. See, when we coldly calculate how to hurt another person, that's malice and that's awful. And often we can justify it, can't we? We say, yeah, but they deserve it. They said something to me first. And I always say, imagine if God treated us how we deserve to be treated. There is no place for malice in a person who knows Jesus. Put it away. Third thing there, look, is slander. Again, I'd almost prefer malice to slander. At least malice has the guts to say it to the person's face. 
Slander is when we gossip and when we try to make other people think less of another person. It's even gossip if it's true, by the way. It's even slander if it's true. Because the reason we do it, why are you doing it when you gossip and we all do it? Why do we do it? It's because when we tear other people down, people might think higher of us. There is no place for slander in a person who is a citizen of heaven. Fourth thing there, look there, is filthy language. I don't think you need me to define that. I don't think you need me to give you a list of words. Though I must say, can I throw out a challenge here? Not that there haven't been other challenges already. I've noticed Christians using filthy language more and more, just in the last couple of years. And I think what's happened is, as our world has said, uh, these are the words you shouldn't say, and they said, no, no, we'll use those now, now we'll say these words out here, Christians have just sort of followed along behind and thought, oh, we're a bit better than the word world, and I'm not going to use the words and even say the, insert the letter word or anything like that, but the, the world uses that word now so I can use this word. And we sort of feel a bit, oh, look at my Christian freedom. God hates it. Filthy language. And it's not what he's talking about here, but blasphemy as well. Don't ever put OMG on a text message. That is blasphemous to use God's name in vain. Don't say Jesus' name even in part because you're surprised by something. That's blasphemy. And God hates it. Put it away. And then finally, into verse 9, he says, do not lie to one another. Just be people who speak the truth. The point is, our speech, like sexual temptation, is enormously powerful. It can do incredible good. If you think about it, the most good you can do is by speaking. By speaking, you can share the gospel with someone. By speaking, you can encourage someone. By speaking, you can build someone up. But the most harm you can do is by speaking. It can tear people down, it can hurt people, it can tear people apart, it can tear churches apart. For myself, each morning when I pray and confess my sin to God, it is sins of the tongue that I confess more than any other sins. And I think I know you all well enough to know that it might be the same for you as well. We need to put these things away. As we close now, these last couple of verses, verses 9 to 11, they give us one final reminder of why we need to do this, especially in the way we treat one another. Uh, It's because our new self is not an individual thing. See, the old sinful me died, but the new me, who is raised with Christ, was not just raised on my own, I was raised with you, to be a part of something wonderful and something new, the new people of God. Come with me to verse 9. He says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices. That's what we saw before, isn't it? He's just using a a different metaphor. He's saying, before he said, you've died and become alive. This time it's, you've taken off your old clothes. You've you've put your old clothes, the old filthy rags in the Anglicare bin. And then verse 10, he says, we have put on the new self. So he says, you know, you've put your old clothes off, you've now put on the wonderful clothes of a person who is a child of God. And I can't help but think of the picture of heaven in Revelation chapter 7. If you've got something great to read before you go to bed tonight, read Revelation chapter 7, where it describes God's people as a great multitude from every nation and tribe on earth, and they are all dressed in white robes. And they are white because they have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. 
If you think about it, that metaphor doesn't work, but it's making a wonderful point, isn't it? The blood of Jesus has washed us clean, so get rid of your old filthy rags, the things you used to wear, and put on that. That is us. So Paul's point is, how could we keep living like we used to live? But the thing is, as he talks about it, he's not just talking to you and me as an individual, he's talking to us together. You see, when I was in year 10 at school, I had a really annoying English teacher. And he used to say to me all the time, Colgan, there are no female sheep here. And I'd go, what on earth is he talking about? But his point was, I would always say, use guys like a bad Australian boxer, you, you know, hey, use guy, and I'd use the plural of you, which doesn't exist in the English language, it exists in every other language, and the point here is, it's use guys, that's who he's talking to, he's saying, you guys together, God is making you wonderful, God is making you new, he is making you a new human race, and that's the point in verses 10 and 11, look there, he says, you together, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. See, we are being made into a new humanity that is in the image of God, made to reflect His glory. And in that humanity, all the things that used to divide us are irrelevant. Look at verse 11. He says, In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. To bring it forward to us, he's saying God doesn't care if you are rich or poor, he doesn't care if you are Chinese or Indian, he doesn't care if you have blonde hair or red hair, he doesn't care. What matters is whether you've died with Christ and you're a new person in him. What matters is do you trust in Jesus? And if you are part of that new humanity, then how could you lie to one another? How could you slander one another? How could we speak in anger to one another? How could we say malicious things to one another? If Christ is in that person and Christ is in you, then how could we do that? That's his point. It makes no sense. But how will we put these things to death? How will we put these things away? Because if you're anything like me, you will struggle with it. We will only do that if we go back to verse 1 and 2. If we seek what is above, if we set our minds on what is above. So I want to ask you as I finish, what practical steps are you going to take from tonight, from tomorrow morning, to do just that? What practical steps are you going to do so that you deliberately set your mind on your reality, on where Christ is, on your heavenly home? I'll pray for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful news that you have put to death our old selves with Christ, that you have not left us in our sin and under your judgment, but instead you have made us alive with him. And because we know that, Lord, we pray that you will help us to take deliberate steps to set our mind on heavenly things. Help us to prioritise listening to you speak in your word. Help us to prioritise meeting together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to be encouraged and to be an encouragement to them. And in all things, Father, help us to put to death the things that belong to our worldly and earthly nature and instead put on our new selves in Christ's image. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.